Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I am the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Yeah, good morning. Um, we're thankful to be here. We're here because of the way this very church, the way you have uh, supported us, the way you've blessed us um, over several years now. And um, yeah, even to what was a heightened uh, encouragement to us of uh, people coming from the congregation to spend time with us on the field. And uh, we are so thankful. So we're so thankful to be able to return that and then be in uh, your presence with y'all this morning as well. Uh, this morning, yeah, we want to look at just how the church does, how, how it sends, and, and how it supports the people that it's sending, and, and that it's supporting even if they weren't sent out, just like you're doing with us. And, you know, supporting good is something that uh, is talked about inside the church, certainly. It's talked about outside the church a lot, too. Uh, I've been amazed, actually, just in the short time that we've been back and, and seeing some of the advertisements and just how... There is not a product hardly that's just a product to meet a need, but it's a product to do a greater good outside of the need and uh, impact the community or impact the betterment of your life somehow. And um, even Forbes magazine was talking about this and talking about the millennial generation and whatever it is you might think about the millennial generation, they've taken on this mantra of add good. And um, yeah, they're finding new ways to give back. And Forbes says that rather than making random or one-off donations, their generation characterized by integrating the causes they care about into their daily routines and purchase behaviors. I mean, there's people are seeking to do good through everything, just purchasing stuff. And you think about the, the message or the good that happens through shoes now. I'm not talking about Nike and what they do and what they're promoting or not promoting. What I'm talking about is Tom's shoes. If you've seen Tom's shoes, um, very simple shoes. I wouldn't purchase, but yet Tom's Shoes is selling lots of shoes, and I think a lot of it has more to do with the good they're doing and the good you're supporting by purchasing and wearing their shoes than the actual look of the shoes. Every shoe purchased provides shoes for somebody in South America, and so within four years, uh, within the vision and scope of the owner and the founder of Tom's Shoes, they've given 400,000 pairs of shoes away to people in South America as a result of their shoes being purchased and worn by consumers, um, I suppose largely here in the States. And so people are looking for good to do. They are looking for ways to support good. Now as Christians, as a church, we're looking for that. God has put that within our hearts and he has commissioned us to that. But I want us to look today to see that there's ways and reasons that shape and define us doing that that are separate from what we're seeing advertised and push on us from the television. There are reasons we should support people and there are ways we should support them. And the reality is that in all of this, God is unfolding his plans in the greatest work there is in all of history. And he's calling us into that work in various ways through his church. If you have your Bible, open it to 3 John very briefly. It's not where we're gonna spend today, but 3 John, one chapter, and verse 8 of 3 John. John's writing to the elder Gaius. This is what he tells him in verse 8. He says, Therefore we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Guys, a big reason again why we are here today, my family, is because 
has been a blessing to receive the support, the encouragement, the support through prayer, the support through giving, uh, the support through encouragement coming to the field and spurring us on and well doing through that. We are thankful for this church and, and we consider you, consider you, just like this verse mentions in John here, we consider you to be fellow workers with trust in this work. Now, another way this verse has been translated is, uh, therefore, we ought to receive such men as guests. Some of your Bibles might uh, read it that way. Um, and that's indicative of what this support looks like, I think, when a church is supporting people, at the very least. It's hospitality. Hospitality is at the forefront of what a church does when it supports missionaries. It's what it looks like. And, um, yeah, it's certainly not less than that. Um, but I want us to look at scripture today and see what this support, what this hospitality accompanies too, because it's certainly much more than just hospitality. Uh, my hope is that the way your church supports us and others uh, might become more meaningful as a result of looking at Acts chapter 13 this morning. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, look at Acts 13 and see, I want us to unpack a little bit, maybe what it means whenever John is writing to guys here and saying, we ought to support such men because the reality is he's also talking about the implications of this and that there's other men we ought not to support. And, and we want to be able to discriminate and think through those things. If you have your Bible open, yeah, Acts 13. And I'm actually going to begin with the last two verses of chapter 12. And then we'll read the first three verses of 13. So if you look at Acts chapter 12, verse 24. And this is what Luke records in this God-inspired letter. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose, other's name, whose other name was Mark. And then chapter 13 tells us, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. I want you to hear and I want you to see this is what we want to try and unpack this morning is that the church plays a central role in missions. Uh, it serves as the context from which missionaries are sent and also how they're supported as they're sent. Again, I want you to see that the church is central in this task. A, a church, it, we're going to unpack this a little bit. It teaches, it prays, and it commissions. Right? So that as the church in, uh, sends and supports, it does this through, one, biblical instruction and accountability. It does it also, secondly, through prayer and encouragement. And then third is they do finally here in this uh, little text of Ant in Antioch by commissioning and sending out of their own congregation. And so just walking through this this morning, we're going to do two things. We're going to break it up first and look at God's activity among this particular church in Antioch, including the makeup and the heart of this church. And then we're going to look at the way they, this church is stewarding God's activity, including the gospel being advanced throughout missions. And so we, we see here at the end of chapter 12, Barnabas and Saul, they've just returned from Jerusalem. Now, at this church in Antioch, um, 
the reason they've gone to Jerusalem is because Agabus, the prophet, had prophesied there's going to be a famine throughout the world. The church has taken a collection. They entrusted it to Paul and Barnabas and sent it off to the church in Jerusalem, who appears to be suffering from the results of this famine. And so this church has sent a gift uh, through Barnabas and Paul to Jerusalem to deliver this gift. And, and here we get to chapter 13, and they have just returned from Jerusalem. Now, Anak is actually a city north of Jerusalem, and uh, it's in ancient Syria, and it's a significant city. It's the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria. So it's not just some small little church as he's traveling through the country region that you come across. It's actually a significant city, and can only suppose it's a significant church as well within this city. But how did it form? And, and this is really helpful as we look at them acting, I think. We, we see back in Acts 11 that following the death of Stephen and his persecution, Christians were scattered. And Christians went to Antioch, we're told, in chapter 11, and they preached to the Jews. But what's significant and even more helpful is to see that another group of Christians came from Cyprus and Cyrene into Antioch. And Luke tells us in chapter 11, they began speaking to the Greeks also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So I hope you're already seeing this church in Antioch is unique. And I, I think part of the uniqueness is it has an incredible maturity well, within the scope of these New Testament churches. One, we, we've just talked about their generosity. Yeah, that's a mark of maturity. This generosity, sending a gift off to hurting brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. I'm sure a lot of them didn't know them. But then we see this incredible mark of maturity in gospel unity. We just read about Greeks having received the gospel alongside Jews and forming this church together. And this is remarkable within the context of the New Testament. Uh, in fact, speaking to this uh, gospel for the Jews and the Gentiles, Acts 13 right here, this very text, you know, this small three verses and what follows is a tremendous turning point in the advance of the gospel within the, the book of Acts. Uh, prior to this point in the book of Acts, uh, there has been intentional ministry to the Jews, predominantly through Peter and his ministry. Um, we don't want to miss, though, of course, that within the predominant intentional focused ministry to Jews, God has been working among the Gentiles also. Uh, we remember the Ethiopian eunuch traveling down the desert road and just whirling Philip out there to come alongside him while he's reading the text of Isaiah without understanding, and Philip unpacks it, helps him understand it. He believes and is asked to be baptized. And then, of course, just a chapter or two earlier, Cornelius has his vision. Paul or Peter has a vision. People come to Peter's door. Peter goes at Cornelius's house and goes inside his home, which is remarkable. This Jewish uh, believing Peter walking into this Gentile's home. He preaches the gospel to Cornelius and all those who are with him inside Cornelius's home. The Holy Spirit comes, they believe, and Cornelius and his home and those who are with him, I presume outside of his home as well, uh, they are baptized. So we see that God has been working among the Gentiles all along. In fact, scripture goes much further back than that. But the ministry of the church has looked very Jewish in its orientation up until this point in the scriptures. What we want to see in this is that God has always been a gracious God. 
The exclusivity of the gospel through Jesus Christ, this should not be something that stops us in our track to think, really, does it only through Jesus? What should stop us in awe is the reality to step back and think that us separated from God because of our sinful rebellion towards him actually sent his son to make a way. There is a way that he provided to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And this, this is the scandal. This is the awesomeness. This is the audacity of the gospel uh, to a, a sin-stricken world. Um, so here, though, we enter into a, a new work. It's not normal anymore. Uh, as the, has normally been going to the Jews, now we're moving into the Gentiles as well. What's this church like? What are they thinking, I wonder? You know, because this church, as we're talking about the change of, from Jewish intentional ministry to Gentile intentional ministry, what's the makeup of a, makeup of a church look like that's about to, I think, uh, have such a significant impact on the history of the world and certainly the history of redemption in the world? There's two important things to look at, critical truths, I think, that this church was aware of and they were pursuing. One was that they believed that God's gospel was his work of hope for everyone. They believed this was the hope for everyone. And they believed that God's plan included them to be a part of this work. As far as their understanding and recognition of this being a hope for everyone, uh, I think we see this in three ways. One is that they understood God's longstanding purposes. They understood all the way back in Genesis 12, I believe, that God, when he came to Abraham and promised a seed to Abraham, he promised also that that seed of Abraham's would bless the nations. They understood that this seed of Christ, this or seed of Abraham that came and ultimately was Christ himself, this was a blessing for everyone, not to be just hoarded among the Jews. But something else I think they saw was that they recognized God's work within their own congregation. And I think this is something we can easily miss. I miss it. As I mentioned already, this is a Jewish and Gentile mixed congregation that God has worked among and saved and brought together in unity. And they recognize that. This gospel was for both. This was for all. They saw it. And that's a strong reminder for people like me and I suppose people like you. Because it's so easy to think about the stories of the people that we're sharing among and think, God just doesn't, they cannot be saved. When the reality is since Acts 2, we can read that God has been saving Arabs and he's been saving all kinds of people from all over the world. And this congregation itself is a strong reminder. That, and it's a demonstration of the reality that the gospel saves people from Surrey County, just as it does all people from all over the world. Our congregation itself, it proclaims the mystery of the gospel. It proclaims the power and demonstration of the gospel. And churches should take encouragement in this. Another thing is they acknowledged Paul, I think, in their presence. Paul had this unique, incredible calling back in Acts 9 whenever the Lord came to Ananias. And he said, he is my chosen instrument and he's gonna bear my name before the Gentiles and among the sons of Israel. They recognized the ministers, those that were called to ministry within their congregation. So I think these are the three things that they saw uh, and understood. But the other thing that they understood was that they had an active role in the ministry. I, saw that, I think they saw that um, their church was central in the work of the mission, and, and they were intentional in this. Uh, they were, we're going to see in this text here, one way they were intentional was they were intentional in prayer. I think in how they were worshiping and what they were praying for. We're not, we're not told what it was, but I think it was shaped by their understanding of God's plan for the nations and God and Paul's call for that. Um, 
and they're also intentional in their sending. Yeah, so we should not be surprised by the extraordinary place, though, of this, this church in history. After all, this was the, the church that was first called Christians. Guys, you want to know what ascending church looks like? It looks like Christ. It acts like Christ. It speaks like Christ. It's the type of people that when people look at it, they're like, you know what? looks a lot like Christ. Call them Christians. Um, you know, not only were they loving, we've talked about their generosity. I mean, that's an incredible demonstration of love. And now the thing with that is, I think as churches, there's a propensity in churches to fall into two camps. I've heard this talked about before, and I believe it's true that, you know, there's the churches that are just really loving, and they can fall short of just holding fast to the doctrinal truths that bring salvation. Or, you know, we're familiar also with the churches that strong, strong doctrine, but it just seems rather cold. And, you know, I think people will say, well, where's the spirit? I didn't recognize the love in that church and the way they show affection that, like a church should. But here, we're going to see as we start turning into how they steward um, God's activity in the world. They were not only a loving church. This was a truth teaching church. This was a doctrinal church. So now let's start looking at the way this church stewards God's activity as ascending and supporting church. And, and there's three ways that they're doing it, I think. And one is by teaching. They're teaching scripture. They're a doctrinal church. The other one is by worshiping and praying. And then third, it's by affirming God's work and sending and commissioning people out. I turn with me now to look at thinking through how they teach. Um, Look again at verse 1 of chapter 13. Now there were in Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. It's interesting. I mean, there were a lot of people there, I suppose. But this is what Luke highlights. There were prophets and teachers. There were men in the church here, we see, that were leading and serving the purpose of building her up through teaching. In fact, we can go back again where we learn a lot about this church in Acts 11 and see that actually... um, Barnabas, he had left this church and gone up to Tarsus to get Paul and to bring him back into Antioch. Why? So he could spend a year there teaching the people. This was a concern of Barnabas's. It was a work of Paul's. It was a priority, I believe, in this church. Uh, Here we, yeah, Luke just highlights the activity and growth, not only inside the church, but we see, I think, that teaching was certainly crucial for the foundation of the work Uh, of how this church was moving outside as well. And is teaching really important and central? Well, walking through the book of Acts, where we just get this incredible missional scope, um, we see that the advance of the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, within that work, I'm going to argue that teaching is the central activity of that work. Of course, God is working through that teaching. The Holy Spirit is convicting of sin, and we see a lot of just wonderful acts of God. But teaching is the central work of missions through Peter and Paul. Um, That's why we see these long discourses in Acts, even in this very chapter. Yeah, and so they teach. It's the priority of missions. Think back, uh, the Great Commission, when Jesus, he commissions people. And what does he tell them to do? He tells them to teach them all that I've commanded you. And certainly God's word is the basis for this teaching, isn't it? Uh, Through the teaching of the gospel, according to the Bible, God's kingdom will spread. It will spread by this way. Through this, his church will be built and it will be strengthened as well. 
Um, you know, our goal as we labor and serve is, is to see churches, but it's to see persevering churches. It's to see churches that hold fast to the gospel and to take that uh, gospel that's been protected and preserved, uh, preached faithfully as well. And again, just in chapter 12, verse 24, where we began the reading of today's uh, passage, uh, that's where we take so much encouragement. I think that's why Paul tells us, and he says this phrase a number of times in the book of Acts, the word of God increased and multiplied. What's that telling us? That's telling us that God is accomplishing his purposes. His purposes are his word going forth increasing and multiplying because through his word, through faith in his word, which proclaims his son, people are saved. So I just want to encourage you as I have seen you doing even in the last uh, 24 hours, um, continue to commit yourself to faithful teaching. Um, Continue this work among one another and outside the church. You know, make teaching a priority both here in Surrey and throughout Virginia and, and throughout Um, the world. Uh, You know, don't let this, don't let the idea of doctrine, theology, teaching the word become tiresome to you. Just consider this with me for a second. If Satan can effectively quiet our message, quiet our teaching of God's salvation, his unfolding plan to save all people, or if he can distort this um, gospel being taught correctly and faithfully. Uh, He's effectively hindered the church's mission. Don't just be faithful and bold in teaching it. Hold fast to what it accurately says. Listen to what uh, Pastor Andy Johnson writes uh, regarding this, I think, and and how the church has a role in this, and especially in light of missions. The role of the church is not merely to assess, but also to actively equip missionaries. Uh, We may not know a lot about specific cultures, learning languages, or even historical issues that shape a people's attitudes toward the gospel. And I think you all might say, that's true. I'm not really sure what the Arabs or what the Chinese or what, you know, people in Indonesia are thinking about this. So how can we help equip people to go? Well, he goes on to say, the local church is the perfect place, God's appointed place to grow Christian character, encourage general fruitfulness, and transmit sound biblical doctrine. We shouldn't let a few things we might not know keep us from faithfully and assertively stewarding the responsibility for missions God has given churches. Your efforts to equip and send as well as support missionaries, it includes training and encouragement of solid theology, of biblical understanding that can be adequately taught by those that you send out and support. Um, Of course, we're committed to serving and loving those around us, uh, but we want to be faithfully speaking the gospel message, which is God's means of offering salvation to the world. And so training in the gospel, it's needed uh, in gospel ministry. You know, one thing just as we've seen why this is important is because even in our own context, something that, I mean, there's several issues that we've been wrestling with lately that just draws back not into what does strategy say, because there's all kinds of strategy we could think through. Not what does the culture say, because there's all things, kinds of things that the culture could say, but what does the Bible say and how we should be faithfully seeking to you know, be good stewards of God's activity, God's kingdom being built. And one of these things is, you know, there's a large argument uh, for lots of good strategic reasons, lots of good um, 
help for people that are persecuted for the gospel in the Arab world or um, arguments for why the church would grow faster and that, hey, if a Muslim comes to faith, he should stay in the mosque. He, could, he should keep celebrating the Islamic um, celebrations. You know, he should look as Muslim as he did before and just reshape everything within that context of being a Muslim because by this way he won't be persecuted and he'll still be in his community so he'll have greater influence among his family and he'll be able to teach more effectively because those relationships haven't been severed. This all sounds really good. It sounds very strategic. It sounds very good for the gospel advancing forward. But the challenge is is that scripture advocates that when somebody comes to Christ, they are a different person. They're part of God's family. They've become his children. They have new hearts. They worship in new ways. They certainly worship a new God. And they're a part of a new community. And these are things that, as many good strategies and ideas that people are passionately pursuing in the name of Christ, I think we need to be careful in always bringing these back to, is that scripturally faithful? Is this something that honors God? And just trust that, you know what? Faithful preaching of the word, even though it might not seem like it's going to go fastest, I trust that it's going to be the most faithful and that God's going to accomplish his purposes. And yes, we do want to see people saved now, but we want to see them saved in the way that God's word is affecting that power of conversion in their lives and that he is honored uh, through it. You know, another reason we rely on the biblical revelation and the doctrine is you know, um, we looked at Revelations already, but in Revelations, we also see Christ's throne. We see the nations, all the nations around it, worshiping him. And this helps us know what we're working on too, right? Sometimes we get there and we just don't really know what we're working toward. We know, we know, we want people to know that Jesus loves them, but we don't know what we're working toward. And the reality is we're working toward people all worshiping Christ around the nations. And I think our churches are what represent this best, this side of heaven. And so we're working towards churches that present that because this is the ultimate goal. And that's where this text again in Acts is helpful. Look again, and it provides us a picture of how a church's theology can support and encourage a missionary. We've already described the maturity of the church evidence through the unity of the Greeks and Jews being together. However, unpack it a bit. Look at the people that are together in this prayer meeting. Barnabas, a Jewish believer, Simeon, who was called Niger, uh, presumably because he was a black man from Africa, part of this group. Uh, Lucius of Cyrene, a Greek believer. So you have three people that probably ordinarily aren't sitting together and sharing tea. But then you have Menean, who is friends with Herod. Friends with Herod the Tetrarch, well, he killed John the Baptist. Certainly probably didn't hang out with a lot of these people. But then obviously, or not obviously, but very much presumably from a completely different social class than the rest. And then, of course, you have Paul, whose background speaks for itself. You know, a Jew of Jews and then, of course, a persecutor of the church until God just uh, radically changes his life. These five men are together, not just attending a megachurch and seeing each other crossing paths once a week, but they're together in a commitment to doing good in the church, teaching alongside one another, praying alongside one another for the good of the church and for the benefit of Christ's name among the nations. Guys, this should look spectacularly 
amazing. This is unusual. This is an unusual scene. I think it is still an unusual scene today to see people like this gathered together in unity. And yet, this is the gospel. This is the type of thing that makes people look and say, how did that happen? It happened because the Spirit indwells them and brings unity, because Christ changed them. It's so unusual. Paul spends a lot of his letters unpacking the reality that these people can and should and deserve to be together because the gospel draws them together. But where does this speak to the missionary? Why is this supportive of the missionary? I find it in Galatians chapter 2, verse 2, when Paul writes that he was afraid that he had labored in vain. And it was because of this very issue. Paul was afraid that these Greeks and Jews that he had been called to preach among, who he was committed to preach among, and who, if you think about his ministry, who he gave his whole entire life, you know, his spirit, his waking hours, and his very flesh, you know, whether it was being beaten or stoned, he gave it to this task. And then he writes, I fear that I might have run in vain. And it's not actually because he was concerned that he was doing the wrong thing. It was that he was concerned that the churches were not going to accept the work of the Greeks being in unity among the Jews, which he was so um, fervently laboring among for the sake of the gospel. Uh, it's almost impossible to conceive of Paul considering this and thinking like this, all because of theological differences. Hold fast to theology. Pursue it as a church. Teach it, encourage one another in it, build one another up in it, use it to identify who you're gonna support, how you're gonna support them, and then support them in it. Engage them in how they're thinking through biblically their work. People on the field need this help. I don't know anybody that has reached the pinnacle where they say, well, you know what, I've got it all figured out. We need help working through this again and again and again, and we need community and we need churches helping us walk through this. It does matter. The gospel is at hand in this matter. I'm convinced that Islam arose out of bad theology, actually. We need to hold fast to it. Um, here we see this beautiful picture of what it looks like when people hold fast to the gospel and the theological, correct theological understanding that Jews and Greeks belong together in fellowship through the gospel. Uh, there's not only a reconciliation with God, but there's a reconciliation with each other. A new people of God is being created through this work. Guys, this is the good news. This is the gospel. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. All five of these people were in a prayer meeting regardless of their geographical background, their economic background, their social background, their religious background. They were all together in unity because of the cross. It offered the hope to them that when they were cut off from fellowship with God and certainly cut off from fellowship with one another, God was rich in mercy towards them as he is towards me and you and all the world so that he sent his son to die on the cross to remove their sin, making that fellowship attainable, drawing them into fellowship. In fact, the Bible tells us calling them sons through adoption so that they would be his, healed from their sins made right with God, and as we see here, made right with one another. Again, can't say it enough, the church, this church, is an awesome demonstration of the gospel because of the fellowship that is present uh, through it, which is possible only through the gospel. If you don't know what reconciliation with God looks like, if you don't know what reconciliation with others looks like, if that's something that you struggle with, if you don't know what the freedom and the rest of 
resting in Christ's work and not your work means come talk to one of the elders afterwards if you have a chance. Pursue one of them, find me, and hear how the gospel does draw you out of darkness and into light. Make relationships right, not only with God, but with others who are in Christ as well. Guys, let God's word shape and drive the task of mission in this church. Uh, we see people um, as churches here, we see them committed to action, okay? Um, we see them committed to action and many are committed to action one way or another. But in this text, see what they're doing, right? So I, I think they know what they need to be doing, but see what they're doing right here. A group of men and leaders in the Bible here in Acts 3, and how is this being demonstrated? What are they doing? They're worshiping. This is the foundation of what churches are about, and this is the foundation of missions, guys. They're worshiping. Don't miss the context that God of activity that's going on that God used to accomplish his purposes through this church. It was through worship unto himself. He is the object of what they're doing here. And it's through worship that he leads them outwards. Um, missions doesn't begin with an outward focus. It is an outward focus, but it begins with an upward focus. It begins with a focus on God. And as this right focus upon God moves anywhere, even towards a priority of focus on missions, then that mission is going to be astray. It's going to be off kilter. And that's why I think we wrestle with the problems I just talked about of, you know, what should Muslims do when they respond to Christ? Focus, the priority is always on God. I think that's why John Piper so adequately and rightly says that missions exist because worship doesn't. If everybody was worshiping Christ we'd be doing something different. We'd be talking about something different. Um, it's a worshiping church, though, that is sending out missionaries to preach the gospel. And within worship, what are they doing in their worship here? That's what it tells us they're doing in Acts 13. I do think they're praying. We know they're praying later, but I think that worship certainly includes prayer. This is one of those things, right? Prayer, it's easier to talk about than to do. Um, but the Bible does talk about it a lot. And we recognize that we need to be in prayer. God made us for that, to be in communion with him. Right? That's why we rejoice in having right fellowship with him, because we can approach him with boldness through his son. But I want you to see here and, and encourage you in the practice that we see here of corporate prayer. Um, we all are people that are growing and pressing on in personal prayer. I am confident of that. And we need to continue pressing on in that. We also need to be intentionally working on and growing in corporate prayer. Scripture shows many more instances of corporate prayer than it does private prayer, although I believe private prayer undergirds it all as well, and that's certainly not to be given up for the sake of corporate prayer. But be praying corporately. Be dependent as a people upon God. That's what these people were here when they were praying. They were pursuing his leadership. And notice, they were pursuing his leadership. And I, through this worship, through what I believe was prayer, um, they weren't doing it outside of his revealed will. Uh, as they were praying, I think they were praying with this, seeking the purpose to send people out, which was within their understanding of Genesis, Abraham's covenants, the things within the understanding of what we've already talked about made them uh, um, capable sending church. They understood and acknowledged God's truths. 
I think those were what were forming their prayers. They were praying in ways that God had already showed them he had desires for, and they're praying to be a part of those and work through those. Pray in line with what God has showed us he desires to accomplish and pray that he would lead us to work within the activity that he's already about. Missions is primarily spiritual. Why do we pray? It is primarily spiritual. Becky talked about that in a Sunday school hour with N. It is a spiritual work. Um, you know, we often find ourselves on the, you know, in ministry, just having a strategy, having a scheme, working at it, and at the end, recognizing this is a spiritual matter. The best of my plans lay short apart from God's intervention in a wonderful way. Um, and in prayer is an encouragement to those that you're supporting and sending out. Advocacy on their behalf is an encouragement. We have been encouraged by prayer, by people that pray for us, just as you have. Um, and when people know that that church is a church that's serious about praying, that's an encouragement, knowing that it's not just saying we're praying for you, but they're a church that's committed to praying for you. Continue to labor in prayer in that way. Um, that is a partnership in the work. Uh, we see this as a very true encouragement in Paul's letters. How often does Paul say how, to people that he's writing to how he's praying for them? I think that's an encouragement. He's encouraging them through that. Be specific in letting people know you're praying and how you're praying for them. Bless them in that as you devote yourself to prayer. Um, you know, so what do you pray? How do you pray? Paul's letters are helpful in that. Um, I would encourage you in this season of life uh, that sees where many things are being exposed, guys, um, whether it be through the Me Too movement or within our own convention, many um, just wrongs and sins have been exposed and it's been tremendous. And it's on the field as well where sin does happen and it is exposed. And it's among ministers, among godly men and women that this is happening. Look at 1 Timothy 4.16 and let this model your prayer where Paul writes Timothy and he tells Timothy, pay close attention to yourself. He also mentions that as your life in other, ten, uh, in other translations. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Guys, as you pray for missionaries, pray that they would be guarded guarded in their character, guarded from sin, and guarded from strain and the false teaching. Pray for these things, that God, that they would persevere in these things. Because as Paul says, it's through these things that people will be saved, not because they're good people on the field, but as they teach uh, rightly and accurately and according to a good character as well, that offers salvation. Colossians 4, Paul's telling them, devote yourselves to prayer, and he's saying, pray at the same time that God would open a door for the words that we may speak. And listen to this, he says, so that we may speak it in a clear way. This is one of my biggest prayer requests. Pray for boldness and pray for clarity. There's a lot of times that we speak and I think we're really bold. And I walk away though thinking, was that really very clear though? Pray that we would be clear. People need to understand this message and respond to it. Uh, and just look at Paul's examples, Ephesians 1 and others, for wonderful patterns to shape your prayers for those that are laboring as well as one another. Um, and then we see the church uh, significant in sending. 
So we've seen that they support missionaries here in Antioch uh, that is offered through the church, through its teaching, I think through its worship, specifically its prayer. Um, And now consider that the support offered uh, is through sending as well and how the church sends. That is an encouragement. That is support. In Acts 13, again, here, we see the church responding to the Holy Spirit's instruction regarding Paul and Barnabas's appointment to go. And we see the church's obedience to the Holy Spirit in this. We see their affirmation. We see them commissioning through prayer and laying on of hands. Guys, the Holy Spirit is initiating this. Um, it's not a program that people schemed. It's not a project they devised. There is certainly a place for these things, but they are under the Holy Spirit's initiating. Let the Holy Spirit initiate these things just as he does here. He initiates the calling, and yeah, we see how the church affirms in the sending then. Uh, we're reminded once more in this, at this point in Scripture that God, I want to remind you in this, that God is a wonderful Savior. Not only has he sent his Son to provide the means of salvation, He's equipping and calling missionaries to proclaim that salvation to those in need. Isn't that incredible that God hasn't just acted in this way? He's continually preparing and sending out his people so that that news would be made known to others. Um, We ought to be encouraged as we read that in this little short text of Acts and as we see that happening in the church today. Be encouraged that God is actively saving. That's why he's doing this. And there's rest in this as the Holy Spirit's leading this and as he's equipping. Um, This is an active work that he's doing that does not ultimately rest on our shoulders. Uh, There's great joy for the church that recognizes his calling of a minister because it's his work that he's doing, uh, whether that be a missionary or any other uh, minister, such as a pastor or a youth leader. They see that God's ongoing gracious work in this world and their affirmation of his work is through that person. And we see it done here, yeah, again, through the commissioning by the laying on of hands. So note two observations though in this. First, only Paul and Barnabas are called by the Holy Spirit to go. Um, There were more people in the church. Only these two were called to go. And so were the others not called to be missionaries? And I just wanna tread lightly, but I would say no and yes. Nobody was exempt from the task of sharing the gospel with the people around them. Hear that. Nobody was exempt from that task. I think that's why we often hear everybody's a missionary. But the reality is, as it was here, and I think as it is still today, not everybody was called. And I want you to hear freedom in that. This is not, you know, missions should not be a heightened guilt week. It should be an encouragement for you that not all are called and rejoice and affirm those who are called, though, and see that God is certainly calling people to go to other places. He's calling them in unique ways as you as a church pursue his leading in this. The second observation, though, which might be more challenging for a church to think through is he called Paul and Barnabas. These were the leaders in the church. These were the people that were teaching. These were the people that go and doing ministry. He picked well-equipped people to be sent, and he's still doing that today. Be willing to let go of the qualified leaders that are being sent to go out from your church and lay your hands on them in the ministry. Guys, as you're laying hands on them in the ministry, I want you to hear that you are taking part in their ministry. It's not just a, we're happy you're going, go. 
It's you laying your hands on them because they are going out from your church as representatives and as stewards of the gospel through your sending. And you're a part of that work. Their shares in struggles and sorrows are your shares in struggles and sorrows. Their shares in joys and victories are your shares in joys and victories. That's why Paul cautions Timothy to be careful about who you lay hands on because you are sharing in their work as you support them in this work. Guys, my hope, my prayer for this church is that you would continue to be faithful in supporting the missionaries that you're sending out, supporting those that you connect with, uh, through people like us that are connected with your church now. Just continue steadfast this gospel as a wonderful treasure. Again, turning to John 3. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they're strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. May the Lord guide you and provide you um, understanding and wisdom and the equipping as you continue to send and lead people out and do it with discernment and faithfulness. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you as your people in whose lives you've worked. And Lord, we pray, I pray for this church that you would encourage them in the work you're doing outside of this church and that you would also prepare men and women within this church to be sent out. May your Holy Spirit lead in this calling. May they recognize it. May they be faithful and good stewards in teaching unto that task, equipping those whom you are equipping. Um, and that, Lord, you would commit them, lead them in the commitment to prayer and to faithfully sending and supporting. May these things be done unto your glory and may this church rejoice in seeing how you are continuing to work through her unto your glory. We pray this all for the name and praise of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing here locally in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.